Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Welcome to the Science Podcast for September 2nd, 2016. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Deborah Butchkowski discusses the latest findings at the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt, also known as Ceres, with Julia Rosen. And Catherine Matisik is here with a roundup of stories from our daily news site. Now we have Catherine Matisik, an editor for our daily news site. She's here to talk about some recent online stories. First up, we have a story on how dogs listen. The study we're going to talk about purports to show that dogs know what words are. And I think we need to start from there, Catherine. Uh, What are words when it comes to dogs? And do other animals recognize these so-called words? Words are just chunks of sound that have independent meaning. To us, they have a very specific meaning, like sit versus stay. Other animals use what we might think of as words. Bottlenose dolphins and certain parrots have signature whistles or calls that function like names. And monkeys, prairie dogs, and even chickens have calls that identify specific predators. But what about dogs? Sure, they can sit, stay, and if you're really lucky, they can stop barking. (laughs) But do those words mean the same thing to dogs as they do to humans? The new study doesn't delve completely into dog psychology, but it does show that they might be able to at least recognize some individual human words. Oh, very cool. The question they ask here is, really, do dogs process words and tone? So you always think about how when you talk to a dog, you're like, good, good dog, good dog. So you like have this excited intonation as well as... Right. Or like you and me, how you talk to your cat. Right. Oh, yes. Um, But so what they did was they said, well, is it all about the tone? Is it about what we're saying? And then they tested that by using family pets. What do they do for these dogs? Well, the researchers were very concerned about using happy dogs since they had to lie still for extended periods in an MRI machine. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of those, but it's not fun. (laughs) So they trained 13 dogs to do just that in the scanner while they listened to recordings of their trainer's voice. The dogs heard audio recordings of meaningful words in Hungarian. For example, well done. They also heard meaningless words, phrases like as if. Both were spoken in a praising tone and in a neutral tone. 
So the dogs were in the fMRI. It was banging away at them, and they were listening to their owners tell them, you're doing a good job, or you're doing a very good job. When they looked at these scans, what did they see in the brains of the dogs? When the scientists analyzed the brain scans, they saw that no matter what the trainer's tone was, the dogs processed the meaningful words in the left hemisphere of the brain, just like you or I. But the dogs didn't do this for the meaningless words, suggesting that phrases like, well done, might actually have meaning to dogs. The dogs also processed intonation on the right side of the brain, again, like you and I. And when they heard words of praise delivered in a praising tone, so for example, these two inputs matched up, yet another part of their brain lit up, and that was the reward center. Meaning and tone enhanced each other, just like they do for people. What does this mean for when we're sarcastic with our dogs? I have a feeling that part of it at least depends on how smart your dog is. The finding overall doesn't mean that dogs understand everything we say. But it does mean that you probably can't fool a smart dog with sweetly telling him that you're taking him on a trip to the vet. (laughs) Next up, we have a story on a safe RNA therapy. RNA therapies have held out a lot of promise over the years, but with very little payoff. Only two such treatments have been approved by the FDA, despite dozens of clinical trials. Well, it looks like that's changing. How does RNA therapy work, Catherine? So it's quite complicated. I can give you the long version and the short version. I'll start with the short version. Um, And that is RNA therapy uses RNA to block the production of proteins. That is a very short version. (laughs) But I get what you're saying. Basically, RNA is part of the process for making proteins. And so if you introduce RNA, what happens then? So when our genes activate, their DNA codes are translated into snippets of single-stranded RNA called messenger RNA. This messenger RNA migrates to protein factories called ribosomes, which convert their codes into amino acids. And these amino acids, as you probably know, are the building blocks of proteins. So to interrupt that building process, there's a type of therapy called antisense RNA. With these therapies, scientists inject cells with RNA strands that bind to specific snippets of messenger RNA. And remember, the messenger RNA is single-stranded. So when you throw these other single strands in and they hook up, then you've suddenly got a double strand. And that means that the ribosomes can no longer read them and produce the amino acids that form the proteins. What have been some of the big problems using RNA in this way, you know, as a treatment for people? So the big problem is that for as much hype as there has been around these antisense RNA drugs, they usually don't work. Among other problems, most of these snippets, once they're introduced into the cell, they get chopped up by enzymes inside the cell before they reach their target. These enzymes think that the strands are foreign material, so they seek them out and destroy them. But as I said at the beginning, there's something happening. We're moving forward in this area. What did researchers do differently to make this work? Scientists have come up with a new version of this therapy known as spherical RNA. Unlike conventional messenger RNAs, which are just short, linear sequences, these spherical RNAs are tiny spheres 
with 100 or so identical snippets of RNA that are attached to a central particle. This is usually some type of a fatty lipid. This allows these spherical RNAs to get into cells and prevents them from being chopped up by those enzymes we talked about earlier. And in theory, this should enable therapies for dozens of genetic diseases. Researchers could simply change the sequence of the RNAs bound to the central particle, and each one could, again in theory, block the production of a different protein. The success here was getting this into cells, making sure that the RNA wasn't chopped up, and they were targeting this protein associated with psoriasis, the skin disease. Why did they pick that disorder, and how did this antisense spherical RNA therapy work out? They targeted this particular skin disease because, first of all, it's a genetic condition, and second, because it is caused uh, when the cells build too many copies of a protein called tumor necrosis factor. Very scary name. This tumor necrosis factor, when there's too much of it, overstimulates the immune system and leads to red, scaly skin lesions. What was really interesting about this new study, which again is only testing for the safety of this therapy, is that when uh, the spherical RNA was injected into people with this condition, it seemed like not only was it safe, but there was some sort of a dose-dependent reaction, meaning that the higher the dosage, the less production there was of that tumor necrosis factor. This isn't a cure by any means, but it is sort of a first step, not only for this particular use of the therapy, but for other possible therapies in the future. Lastly, we have a story on the death of our most famous ancestor. We all know Lucy, the skeleton of a very early hominin. Uh, she's a Astropithecus afarensis, I believe. She was dated to around 3.2 million years ago. Ever since she was found in the 1970s, Lucy has been the subject of an immense number of studies, but obviously there's still more to learn. Like, how did Lucy die? Just spoil it for us, Catherine. How did she die? She died of embarrassment no. when they named her after that Beatles song. Oh. Lucy was very anti-drugs. Yeah. Hey, you said to spoil it, right? Yeah, you spoiled a lot of things. Right all there. right, all right. So just kidding. I'll get to the meat now. So the bottom line is, is that no one knows for sure how she died. But new evidence points to the fact that she may have been pretty high when she fell. Oh, boy. <laughs> from a tree. Coming. Oh, I really didn't see that coming. Okay, so fell out of a tree. Let's back up now to how we could possibly know this. What kind of proof are these researchers offering? Fractures in Lucy's bones. Her upper right arm bone, or humerus, which is, of course, my favorite bone, had completely collapsed. The injury was a dead ringer for a type of fracture in which the shoulder blade smashes into the arm bone, driving it downward. These kind of breaks happen a lot when people fall from a great height with their arms outstretched or brace their hands on the dashboard in a car accident. That's not what happened to Lucy, though. All the evidence points to the fact that she was not killed in a car accident. <laughs> however, however, there's always more evidence to be had. Other bones showed telltale signs of a mighty fall from a height of about 13.7 meters, say the scientists. That's as tall as a four-story building. A very, very big tree. A very big tree. Researchers' best guess 
is that it would have been a mature acacia tree, which can reach heights of up to 30 meters. Although Lucy walked upright, she probably still slept in a tree at night or climbed trees to escape predators. The skeleton, though, is very old. Is there really any way to know for sure what happened to Lucy, what kind of tree she fell out of, if it really was a tree, if this really was the way that she died? Other researchers are skeptical. They say there are simply too many fractures to be the result of even a great fall. Lucy's ribs, for example, are fractured in so many places that one scientist said you couldn't get the same results with a shotgun blast. Instead, he says the breakage patterns look just like fractures that happen after death, the result of movement in water or soil, tectonic forces, pressure of overlying sediments, and the same weathering and trampling that happens to other animal bones over time. But there's nothing that we can do right now to really verify it either way, But given Lucy's incredibly long history uh, in the research community, I'm sure people are going to keep trying. Okay, Catherine, what else is on the site this week? We have a story on the oldest fossilized signs of life and another on a new fabric that keeps you cooler than cotton. On Science Insider, our policy blog, we have a story on the world's falling supply of gonorrhea drugs and China's push against antibiotic resistance. Thank you so much, Catherine. Thanks, Sarah. Catherine Matisik is an editor for online daily news site. I'm Sarah Crespi. You can check out the latest news in the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Hi, it's Sarah. I'm going to talk about Blue Apron by myself today. And, you know, I just want to talk mostly about how convenient it is to have high-quality ingredients delivered to your house instead of having to drive to the grocery or sometimes walk to the grocery to get every single thing that you want for a recipe. Instead, you get food delivered to you and the recipe delivered to you, and you're, it's up to you to put it together, but that's the fun part for most of us. Blue Apron also has an impact on communities. They've established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranches across the United States. Blue Apron can also be delivered to 99% of the continental U.S. For less than $10 a meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Some of the meals available this month, that's September, are eggplant and chickpea tangine with island pepper, tomato, and couscous. And paprika-spiced shrimp and cheddar grits with tomato and sweet corn. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash science mag. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash science mag. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. In early 2015, NASA's Dawn spacecraft entered orbit around Ceres, When the object was first spotted in 1801, astronomers thought they had discovered a missing planet between Jupiter and Mars. Fifty years later, they decided it was actually an asteroid. Now, Ceres is considered a dwarf planet, and scientists have been using the Dawn data to unlock its mysteries. I spoke with Deborah Butchkowski about detailed new images of Ceres' surface and what they can tell us about the dwarf planet's composition. Ceres is the largest asteroid in the asteroid belt. And for those who don't know, the asteroid belt is this group of thousands of rocks in space that just kind of is in 
orbit around the sun between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter. There's literally thousands of rocks just kind of floating in space. And the very first one we discovered, and to this day still the largest we've discovered, is Ceres. Unto itself, it's about a third to half of the mass of all of the asteroids in the asteroid belt. It's that large. It's just significantly bigger than everything else there. And in fact, when Pluto was famously or infamously reclassified as a dwarf planet, they actually classified Ceres as a dwarf planet as well. It is a dwarf planet for all the same reasons that Pluto is. It is large. It is spherical but it was not able to clear its orbit, which basically means all those other asteroids are there, and therefore it isn't a planet, but it is a dwarf planet. So what the Dawn mission was hoping to discover was basically how planet-like is Ceres. And there's certain things that we equate with our terrestrial planets, which are Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. And we were wondering, you know, here's this body that now is considered a dwarf planet. So just what makes it a planet and how similar is it to Earth and Mercury and Mars and these other planets? Your work focuses on the surface of Ceres. How much did we know about it before the Dawn mission? We have telescopes both on the surface of Earth and in orbit around Earth that can see Ceres and have been able to look at it. They don't get the high-resolution images that we're getting from the spacecraft, but we've had a sense of what the surface would look like. For example, the Hubble Space Telescope could distinguish both bright and dark spots on Ceres, So we knew that there were visible differences in how bright the surface was. We were also able to use these telescopes to detect certain kinds of minerals. We were able to look at the data and determine that there were minerals on Ceres that only form in the presence of water. So this kind of gave us a hint that there might be water on Ceres and made us want to go there and see what the surface looked like. You studied images captured by the spacecraft's framing camera. What kinds of features did you find? Far and away, the most common feature were impact craters. And this is not new. Uh, Almost every planetary body in the solar system has lots and lots of impact craters on the surface. We also found one very large plateau, an area that is higher than the rest of the surface. It's called Hanami Planum. We found lots and lots of fractures. The surface is very fractured, especially on the floors of some of the craters and on Hanami Planum. We found a lot of domes and mounds. One of these domes, the largest, is called a Hunaman. That one's a mountain, but the other domes are features called soli. And then we found three different kinds of lobate flows that resemble different kinds of features that we've observed on Earth. Many of the impact craters you studied are unrelaxed. What does that mean, and what does it tell us about Ceres? On the icy moons of Jupiter and Saturn, impact craters aren't as deep as they are on the rocky planets and moons. And scientists have studied this and have come to believe that this is because ice isn't as strong as rock, and so the shape of the crater kind of relaxes away. It's kind of like making a hole in a big block of paper mache as opposed to a big block of pudding. If you did it in something strong like paper mache, the shape would hold, but if you did it in pudding, the pudding would kind of ooze back in and and would destroy the shape and make it less deep than it is in the hard stuff. So that's what uh, relaxation is referring to. What it means for Ceres, we expected there to be a lot more ice. We thought that there would be relaxed craters like there are on these icy moons. And in fact, there's a lot of fresher looking craters than we expected, which basically implies that there is less ice in the crust of Ceres than we expected there to be. 
You also write that you found evidence for what looks like cryomagmatism and cryovolcanism on Ceres. I'm imagining ice volcanoes. Is that right? When we're talking about what cryomagmatism is or cryovolcanism is, we have to really kind of take a step back and understand what we mean when we say magmatism on Earth or the other terrestrial planets. So when we're talking about magma, we're talking about a soft, squishy, partially melted rock that's underneath the surface. So we have this nice, strong, solid rock crust. And then somewhere underneath that is this liquid, molten, mushy rock. And as that rock, because it's hot, moves upward through the solid rock, it can deform the surface and cause features to form. And when it breaks onto the surface, this magmatism becomes volcanism. So when we go looking at these icy bodies, for example, the icy satellites around Jupiter and Saturn, it's the same process, but it's ice. So we have this really strong, super cold ice at the surface, and then we have this partially molten, partially melted, kind of liquidy, plasticky ice subsurface to it, and it is moving upward and deforming that strong ice at the surface, and sometimes it breaks onto the surface and we have cryovolcanism. What we're seeing at Ceres is what we think is a mixture of rock and ice at the crust that is stronger than a soft, squishy ice subsurface to it, and that soft, squishy ice is behaving the way magma would on Earth. It is upwelling and deforming the surface and creating features on the surface of Ceres that look very similar to features that we see on other terrestrial bodies. Were you surprised by anything you found? I think we were all surprised by Ahuna Mons, and I don't want to go into too much detail because there's a paper all on Ahuna Mons because it was so surprising. (laughs) For my part, I didn't expect to see floor-fractured craters. These are features that are previously only observed on the Moon and Mars. These are impact craters where there are patterns of fractured rock on their floors. And on the Moon and Mars, they've been hypothesized to form where magma, liquid rock, is upwelling under the impact crater. And it pushes the floor of the impact crater up and creates patterns of fractures. And the different patterns of fractures tell us something about what style of magmatism is occurring. So seeing these floor-fractured craters on Ceres suggests that there's magmatism on Ceres. However, the amount of ice that's on Ceres suggests that the magma that's upwelling underneath these craters is, in fact, a cryomagma, an icy magma, as opposed to a volcanic rock magma. How have these new pictures changed our understanding of the dwarf planet's structure and composition? The pictures of Ceres have revealed these landforms that I've been talking about. And studying these landforms has really helped us to determine how much ice there might be in the Ceres crust. So we talked earlier about the large number of unrelaxed craters on Ceres and how this suggests that there's less ice than we anticipated before dawn got to the dwarf planet. The large fractures on Ceres, these are fractures that extend for hundreds of kilometers across the surface. The fact that they're still there also suggests that there's less ice in the surface of Ceres than was expected. But then we're seeing these other features like Ahuna Mons and the other domes or the floor-fractured craters, which are very indicative of cryomagmatism. So this idea that there is some kind of AC magmatism under the surface. So we have one set of features that suggest there's less ice in the surface than we expected, but another set of features that suggest that there's more ice in the subsurface than we expected. And so looking at these features and what's forming on the surface is really helping us determine the composition of Ceres as a whole. What comes next? Is the mission over? 
Actually, good news is that the Dawn mission has been approved for an extended mission, which means that we get to stay active at series longer than planned. We've been given more funding so that as long as the Dawn spacecraft is alive and sending back data, we have funding to actually analyze that data. It's great news. So there will be more images and there will be more compositional data acquired. And this is going to help us refine the hypotheses that we currently have and are already working on. So we'll just be getting more data and that will help us figure out what is going on on this very fascinating body in the solar system. Deborah, thanks so much for talking with me. You are very welcome. Deborah Butchkowski is a planetary geologist at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory and a member of the Dawn Science Team. She and her colleagues write about the geomorphology of Ceres in this week's Science. Julia Rosen is a freelance science journalist and former AAAS Mass Media Fellow. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other apps, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Sarah Crespi. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.